We saw at the end of the last unit that for all of the turbulence of 1789, by the end of that year, after the October days, there was a very broad consensus within the French political class, and a great deal was achieved over the course of the next year, year and a half, from the fall of 1789 to the spring-summer of 1791. Yet that consensus broke down. Right? It broke down, as I say, in the spring and summer of 1791. Right? And so implicit within this question, why does a constitutional monarchy fail, lies another big question, which hangs over the, the French Revolution and the literature on the French Revolution. And that question is, when does the terror become inevitable? When does the terror become inevitable? For the past generation or so, most historians, especially revisionist historians, have argued that the terror was inevitable from 1789 onwards. It was the product of the political culture of the old regime itself. These historians stress the centrality of ideology and culture. They see a pre-existing mental framework that identified disagreement with treason, with treason, with faction, with intrigue. The idea of a loyal opposition, they point out, was alien and unthinkable. Now, more recently, there has been a revival of the social interpretation, and with it, what is known as the thesis of circumstance. These historians write of a revolutionary becoming, of a revolutionary dynamic that takes on a life of its own. They view the breakdown of consensus, the collapse of the monarchy, and the advent of terror as the product of short-run developments, of circumstances. In effect, the adherents of the social interpretation change place here with the, the revisionists. Uh, you know, in discussing the origins of the revolution, it was the revisionists, if you recall, who describe it as a mistake, an accident. Right? They emphasize short-term short changes. But when explaining the terror and the origins of the terror, these revisionists tend to point to deep, long-standing cultural and ideological forces. Right? Really, these, you know, these historians, who often uh, you know, tend to be politically conservative, equate the terror, which was a relatively brief, if intense, phase of the revolution, right? they equate it with the revolution as a whole. Now, social historians, on the other hand, uh, who view the revolution, at least the origins of the revolution, as an inevitable byproduct of developments in commerce, trade, and technology, tend to view the terror as distinct from the revolution uh, and revolutionary process, right? perhaps necessary, but a regrettable reaction to outside forces and not the product of revolution itself. Okay, but all of this talk of the terror is to get ahead of myself. Here, I want to explore the early years of the revolution, to sketch out its main accomplishments, to call attention to its major challenges. Now, the first problem the French revolutionaries had to face was the royal debt. After all, that's what brought them to Versailles with the calling of the Estates General in the first place. And the revolutionaries proposed to pay for that debt by nationalizing church land. Now, this might well have worked, but for reasons we need to discuss in our section meetings, 
the civil constitution of the clergy, which required all priests to swear an oath to the revolution, drew a wedge between those who supported the revolution and those who did not. Right? It effectively created counter-revolution as a mass political phenomenon. The king initially supported the civil constitution of the clergy, but he quickly changed his mind when the pope objected and his own pros, his own priest, excuse me, uh, and, and this was quite important for Louis, Louis's own priest refused to swear an oath. The point of no return came in June 1791, when the king and queen snuck out of Paris and tried to leave the country in the so-called flight to Varennes. The final destabilizing turning point, the one that truly radicalized the revolution, was the drive to war. France declared war on Austria and Prussia the following spring, in April 1792. Okay, so you know, let me start with this period of, of calm, as you know, we're, we're going to be focusing on the early phase of the revolution from 1789 to 1791. Um, and, you know, as you recall from the last unit, the summer was particularly dramatic, right? You had the beginnings of constitutional work uh, you know, in Paris, in the assembly, and you had popular, uh, popular uprisings, right? Most famously, the storming of the Bastille on July 14th, but there was widespread popular violence throughout the countryside in the spring and summer of 1789. Right now, you know, in the readings for, for last week, you know, we raised the question of, well, just how revolutionary were peasant demands in the countryside? Well, you know, to a degree, you know, we can see the existence of longstanding grievances, um, but you know, in, in other cases, you know, perhaps it's, you know, those arguments are not so persuasive. That is, there were no coordinated peasant armies. They don't march on Paris. The peasants don't march on other cities. Um, you know, the, you, you really could make the case that really what most peasants in the countryside wanted was a return to law and, and order. They wanted a return to a, a stable past where the local aristocracy uh, and the king respected basic traditional norms. How revolutionary were the deputies in the assembly? Well, in social terms, in economic terms, they really were not all that revolutionary, right? They wanted high property qualifications for people to participate in politics, right? They were not talking about confiscating private property. I mean, they did talk about nationalizing church land, but that was really the extent of um, redistribution, uh, you know, in terms of the political demands coming out of the uh, assembly. Right. If you look back at the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, right, that was passed in August of 1789. Right? It was the preamble to the Constitution the Assembly was working on. Now, it included what I and, and many others consider a radical notion of sovereignty. Right? All sovereignty resides in the nation. Right? Legitimate political power resides in the nation, right? not the king. The only inequality that uh, only inequality that served the public good could be justified according to this declaration. But at the very same time, you know, in its last article, the declaration insisted that the rights of private property were inviolable. 
right? And so, you know, when we're, we're thinking about the, the summer of 1789, right? We can see these very dramatic changes, but there are limits to how far reaching those, those changes were. Uh, and, you know, the, the drafting of those uh, constitutional articles and the declaration took place against the backdrop of uh, you know, substantial you know, violence, both in Paris and in the countryside. But the harvest of 1789 was a good one. Right. And when the harvest came in, the political temperature lowered. Right. And so there was this interlude of calm between the popular violence of the summer of 1789 and the intense radicalization that starts in late, or at least say in the summer of 1791 into the spring of 1792. Okay. So I, I mentioned uh, that there were you know, substantial political and administrative accomplishments during this phase. Right? And the first that I would point, uh, point you to would be the redrawing of the political map of the kingdom. Right. Instead of the sort of crazy quilt of overlapping provinces and jurisdictions, the map of France was redrawn into 83 administrative departments right, that are all more or less the same size, all of which have capitals in the center of their these departments. And the idea was to make each administrative unit roughly comparable, at least in, in terms of its size. Uh, and the capitals were moved to the center of each of these administrative departments so that the, you know, the entire territory could be reached in one day's horseback ride right, to try to make government more accessible uh, to, to ordinary people, right? But you can imagine what an enormous undertaking this was to change. I mean, if you can imagine, uh, you know, changing the capital of all 50 of the United States, you know, at a stroke, that's what France did, um, late 1789 into 1790. There were far-reaching reforms of education, mostly in the realm of proposals. But this is the, the, the moment when the, the government starts to assert its own responsibility for providing public education, right? Shifting the relationship between the government, the church, uh, and citizens. Um, remember, there are no more feudal distinctions that um, you know, between different orders, first, second, and third estate, no longer have legal distinctions. Right? Privilege and liberty no longer mean the same thing, right? So the, the, the legal order is completely overturned. Um, by late 1789, that is after October, after the people of Paris bring Louis and Marie Antoinette um, back, or bring them to Paris from Versailles, uh, the far right-wing members of the Constituent Assembly, they leave. They say the, the revolution has gone too far, we can't possibly salvage things, uh, and, and so they go back, uh, you know, they, they go back home. But what that does to the Assembly is that it moves it towards the political center. And it means that the people who are left in the assembly after October 1789 uh, share a great deal in common. And they, they really do share um, a common vision, right? That I would uh, call the principles of 1789, right? The overwhelming majority of deputies agree that there should be property qualifications to participate in politics. They agree that the rights of property owners are sacrosanct. 
They believe in equality before the law. That is no separate legal system for the aristocracy and for commoners. They believe in free markets, right? So they don't believe in controls on the on the grain trade. They do not agree on fixing the price of bread, um, but they all agree that there should be a constitution, right? Equality before the law and a constitutional monarchy, right? So collectively, these constitute the principles of 1789: private property, free trade, equality before the law. These are really at the the heart of it. Um, okay, but you know, as I've been saying, well, this if this consensus is so strong, how does it unravel, right? And the the first point I you know I alluded to a, a few moments ago, uh, and the first real wrong turn or mistake taken by the deputies in the assembly comes with the civil constitution of the clergy right, that's passed in the summer of seventeen ninety in July. Now, it, it may be counterintuitive, but there was considerable support for the civil constitution of the clergy, or at least there, there was uh, considerable support for nationalizing church land within the, the, the clergy. That is, there were a, quite a number of poor priests uh, you know, in the assembly. Right. Remember our discussion of elections to the states general, which you know, then becomes the, the National Assembly. Um, you know, there were a lot of poor priests and there was a powerful movement within the Catholic Church uh, in the 1780s called Richerism after the, a priest named Edmond Richer. And, and Richerism was a democratic movement within the church uh, that argued that really the church lands and church, the church's wealth should be used to look after the faithful, right? So there was real support among the priests in the National Assembly uh, to use the church land for the people's good. For the people's welfare, um, but uh, you know, I urge you to look closely at you know, William Doyle's description in the textbook uh, and the the details of the text on the civil constitution in the Baker collection to see what went wrong. You know, look in particular for the rules governing the church and the the rules governing the nomination of bishops and and priests it turned out to be incredibly controversial and maybe most problematic of all was that the the deputies insisted that all priests throughout the country swear an oath of loyalty to the revolution um Right. So, uh, you know, that oath was taken in January and February of 1791, and it drew a fault line into the country that, that has existed really ever since. That is, every priest in the country had to either swear an oath uh, or, or to, to reject it. So those who rejected it, they're called non-juring priests. That is, they refused to swear an oath. Uh, and you know, on the whole, right? If we look at the country as a whole, about fifty percent of French priests swore an oath to the revolution. Um, but up to this point, right? Up until July, excuse me, the the winter of seventeen ninety one. This is in January and February that the the oath is actually administered. There was really no meaningful counter revolution. 
I mean, there were a handful of upset aristocrats, but as a you know, political phenomenon, if, you know, if we're talking about more than a small isolated handful of individuals, it did not exist before the winter spring of 1791. But now you have half the priests in the country refusing to swear an oath. Uh, and you know, perhaps more importantly, they weren't you know, distributed evenly across the kingdom. So there were some regions, especially in the west of France, that had really high concentrations of priests that refused to swear an oath to the revolution. Right? So this was you know, a profound division that got driven into the country. Now, in addition to this, uh, Louis XVI initially seemed to support the civil constitution of the clergy, but he changes his mind very quickly uh, you know, when he finds out that the Pope uh, was, was opposed and, and you know, maybe just as important as the Pope's opposition, Louis XVI's own confessor, his own personal priest, refused to swear an oath to the revolution. Right. And so in Easter of 1791, I mean, Louis is still sort of participating. We're still talking about a constitutional monarchy, but Louis XVI was a pious Catholic and he viewed his own, um, you know, his own communion. He, he, he viewed his relationship with his, his own priest as his own business and not the business of the assembly. And so for Easter 1791, Louis XVI took communion from a non-juring priest, right? a, a priest who had refused the oath. And this caused an absolute uproar, especially in Paris, but not only in Paris. Um, and and uh, you know, th this was also the, 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 the impetus for Louis where, for deciding to flee. Right. I mean, Louis XVI has been trying to work with the assembly. You know, he's tried to be flexible and, and to agree you know, wh where he could, but really d despite himself. And this sort of controversy over his taking Easter communion for him was a step too far. And so on June 20th, 1791, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette snuck out the back of the, the Tuileries Palace uh, and they set off for the the frontier. You can you can see their itinerary mapped out on the the PowerPoint deck uh, for the collapse of the the monarchy. They're they're trying to get to to the the Rhineland where there are a, a small group of uh, aristocrats already, and they, they dress up in costume and they have decoy coaches. Um, but they get discovered just a stone's throw from the border. I mean, they almost made it when a postal clerk, you know, recognized Louis XVI. He took his costume off, and they were at a at a postal relay, um, and and Louis gets caught, and he gets brought back to to Paris. But you know, worse than having gotten caught was that you know, before Louis left, he, he had written a poison pill letter when he spilled his heart out and explained just how much he hated everything that the assembly had done up until that point. Right? So when Louis gets captured, this put the, the deputies in the assembly in a very uncomfortable position. Remember that they had been trying to put the, at this point in the spring of 1791, uh, the, the assembly was trying to put the finishing touches on a constitution for a constitutional monarchy. But the monarch had just said he really didn't want 
anything to do with it, that he was there against his will. Um, you know, to you know, make the irony even more poignant, one of the leaders of the uh, assembly at this point was you know, the very same Barnav I mentioned in the, the last lecture, um, uh, you know, who, who had said, you know, was their blood so pure, talking about the massacre of two royal officials. Well, by this point, he's at the center of the action. He's one of the leaders of the assembly trying to negotiate with the king the final details of the constitution when the king goes uh, and, and flees. Right? So it, it put the assembly in a very difficult position. I mentioned a moment ago that there was an outcry when Louis took Easter communion with a non-juring priest. And, and what we see is the emergence of uh, you know, what's known as the sectional movement in Paris. Now, the Paris sections, uh, these were the electoral assemblies that had voted for the Estates General. Um, and they were never fully disbanded. Right, you know, over the course of 1789 into you know, 1790, even into early 1791, I mean, they, they 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 still existed, but they weren't really very active. But they become active, uh, you know, after Easter and especially after the King's flight in June of 1791. Right, so these are the working class radicals, right? the people like Menetra. Uh, the Parisian sans culotte, and this term sans culotte. I mean, I would translate as those who wear pants. That is, culottes were the silk sort of knee breeches worn by the aristocracy who, with big powdered wigs. Uh, but the working classes wore long pants and they, they wore clogs, right? So this was a very gendered, um, the, you know, there was a very powerful idea of a kind of working class masculinity and they didn't trust the king. Right? And they didn't trust the middle class politicians who were uh, you know, trying to negotiate with the king. Uh, and so these Paris sections uh, you know, in 1791, they're armed, they're organized, they create their own militias. They emerge as a major political force uh, to, to, to be reckoned with. And so there's an open, there's a rift that opens up, a division that opens up between the deputies, the middle class deputies in the assembly on the one hand, and the Paris sections on the other. Now the, the, the workers, Menetra and the, the Saint-Coulotte, are struggling with inflation, right? They're outraged by the, the king's flight. Um, and so we start to see in the spring of 1791 the emergence of a kind of new left uh, in the assembly of politicians, uh, of deputies who are willing to make alliances with the, the working class in Paris. Now, after the king's flight, we start to see, especially in the Paris sections, demands for a republic. Now, it's, those demands are not really widespread yet. Right? Even Maximilien Robespierre, who's, who is around, who's a member of the assembly, he's still taking the political temperature. He has not demanded uh, a, a republic yet. But what Robespierre does in the spring of 1791 is he issues what's known as the self-denying ordinance, right? So as the sort of the leaders of the assembly are negotiating with the king and, and Robespierre and the Paris sections view these politicians as hopelessly corrupt, Robespierre pushes through a bill 
that says nobody serving in the National Assembly, and by now it's called the Constituent Assembly, would be able to serve in the next government. That is, he said, okay, we're finishing this constitution, and we're going to have elections for a new government in the fall. Nobody in that new government will be taken from the existing assembly, right? That's why it's the self-denying ordinance. He basically put himself out of power, right? Because you know, he was in the, the National Assembly. He would not be able to serve uh, in the, the, the new legislative assembly. Right. And, and these tensions were only exacerbated uh, in July, on July 17th, with what's known as the Chaux de Mars massacre. Right? This is a, a, a massacre where we, you have a demonstration of working class sans-culotte and the bourgeois guard led by the Marquis de Lafayette open fire. Oh, right. They massacre the well, massacre, but they, I mean, they 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 killed. I mean, I, I forget the exact number, but they 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 open fire on the crowd, and there are casualties there, right? Which further inflames the situation, and now you you see a split within the the Jacobin Club, um, where you know the majority of the Jacobins are actually working with the with with the king to try to finalize. Um, the, the, the constitution uh, and you know given the uproar in Paris and given the demands made by the new um, the this sectional movement the the leaders you know, in the Jacobin Club uh, are, are getting increasingly nervous okay so so let me back up I mean this is a key term I'm sure you've all heard of the the Jacobins but this this term is really quite confusing Okay, so, so let me turn to the, the Jacobin Club and, by extension, the other political clubs for a moment. So the Jacobin Club was a political club. I mean, it was a, it was a, a, a meeting place where deputies in the assembly could meet after hours to discuss strategy. Right? It was a place where deputies could go and they could try out their speeches. Um, and and work out strategy um, before heading over to the assembly. And, and one of the key features of the Jacobin Club was that it had public galleries, right? So the, the, the deputies would go and, and make their speeches and they would play to the crowd. Um, now, it was held, this term, the Jacobins, it's the name of a religious order. Uh, and so the, the meeting hall for this political club, well, the, the club itself took its name from the name of a convent that had uh, you know, a vacant meeting hall. Um, so, so this is where the, you know, the term Jacobin comes from. Uh, and the, if you like the capital, the sort of the flagship of the, the Jacobin club was in Paris, but then there are a series of other Jacobin clubs that, that opened uh, across France. And, and this particular meeting hall, you know, the, the deputies chose it because it was near the assembly. When, they, the, um, when the National Assembly moved from Versailles to, to Paris, the, the deputies were looking for a place to meet, um, as they had done in Versailles. So if you go back uh, you know, to the very early phase of the revolution, from June until October 1789, um, you know, there were a series of 
public places or there were a series of gatherings. The most famous club was called the Breton Club in Versailles, um, where you know, the deputies from Brittany got together to discuss strategy. They were particularly well organized. Um, and you know, as I say, when the, the assembly moves from Versailles to Paris, the deputies are looking for new meeting places to meet and discuss strategy. And they, they, they come upon the the, the Jacobins, this convent, and they, they, they start meeting there. Uh, at any particular point in time, the deputies who are meeting at the Jacobin Club tend to be on the political left. That is, they tend to think the revolution has not gone far enough. Um, now, just what that, what constitutes the political left changes over time, right? As, you know, as we've seen already, um, you, know, the, you know, many deputies who, who showed up and, and really supported the, the declaration of the National Assembly, by the time uh, we get to October of 1789, they think the revolution has gone too far and they left, right? So this is a bit of a, um, a moving target. Um, and what happens in the spring of 1791 is that the majority of the Jacobin Club wants to seal the deal. They want to sign the Constitution with the king. And at that point, they decide that the public galleries in the Jacobin Club are really a problem, right? That they can't work out the final details with, rep with the, the, the Sankulat there in the audience, heckling them, uh, screaming at them. And so the majority of the Jacobin Club... Um, in June of 1789 leaves and they go to another convent that has a meeting room and it's called the Feuillant, right? F-E-U-I-L-L-A-N-T. So the majority of the Jacobin club after the king's flight leaves and they go establish their new club, right? The, the, the Feuillant club. Um, uh, and, you know, really, you know, politically, they're not really any different from the, the Jacobins. This is the, the majority, but they go and they meet behind closed doors. There's no more public, uh, no more public gallery. Uh, and, you know, they're trying to work with the king, right? So this is, you know, there's a distinction between the Fouillon and the Jacobins. It, um, when, when the Fouillon split off in 1791, and what that does to the Jacobin club is that it opens the doors, if you like, for new talent. Right. You get a new group that comes in to take over the discussions in the Jacobin Club in the summer of 1791, uh, and they tend and, and they're very critical of the Feuillant. Right now, uh, you know, to, to make matters more confusing, the group that comes into the Jacobin Club in the summer of 1791, they're they're demanding a republic. Um, Beyond this one very uh, you know, central difference, in political terms, they're no different from the Foyon. They want private property, they want equality before the law, they want free trade, but they think that the leaders, the former leaders of the Jacobin Club are corrupt and that they're working with the king and they, they really do not trust the king. And so the leader of this group is named Brissot, Brissot um, uh, and there are a handful of, of you know, his followers, like Ina, Verniou, uh, they tend to come from the southwestern province around Bordeaux, uh, which is the province or the, the department of the, the Gironde. And so they're known as, as Girondists. So for this phase, 
the summer of 1791 until uh, the, the summer of 1792, the leading members of the Jacobin Club you know, come to be called Girondists, right? From 1792 onwards, uh, you know, the, the Girondists get expelled from the Jacobin Club. You know, I will pick up that story next week. But for right now, uh, I, I want you to be clear that the Jacobin Club is a political club. This is where deputies planned out strategy, uh, and you know, they have public meetings. Um, now, there, there are other political clubs as well, and for the most famous of those is known as the Cordelier Club, that's separate. That has less to do uh, with the assembly than the, the Jacobins do. Uh, and the Cordelier Club is even closer to the sectional movement and the sans-culotte than the Jacobins are, even as the Jacobins become more radical. Right? So this is where Danton comes from. Right? So you can see all of this mapped out on the, on the PowerPoint slides. Okay, so what I'm trying to describe here is uh, a, a fragmented political scene in the summer of 1791, right? Where we've got the assembly, we've got political clubs that are really dominated by middle-class politicians, we've got the Paris sectional movement, um, you know, as sort of separate centers of power that are all sort of competing with one another. Okay, so this is all, you know, confusing and fragmented. Uh, and yet, when the majority of the Jacobins leaves to create the Fouillant Club, they have a substantial um, you know, majority in the assembly. And when the elections are held in the summer of 1791, even after the king's flight, uh, that majority gets further strengthened. Right, so there are elections in the summer of 1791. There is a new assembly that begins to meet uh, you know, that fall called the Legislative Assembly. And the Legislative Assembly is dominated by the Foyon, right? This group that split apart from the Jacobins to get away from the Sanculat, to get away from the public galleries that defended the principles of 1789, private property, free markets, equality before the law, constitution, right? So we get this big consensus is still there for all that, you know, we can see signs of fragmentation, the consensus holds in the summer of 1791. After he gets dragged back from the frontier, uh, Louis, you know, Louis is back. He swears to uphold the constitution. I engage to maintain it at home, he says, to defend it from all attacks from abroad and to cause its execution by all the means it places at my disposal. Okay, still, you know, his support is uncertain. Um, and you know, if the civil constitution really fully alienates him, um, it's going to be the war really that radicalizes uh, the, the revolution. And you know, talk of war emerges in the summer of 1791. Okay, I, I mentioned Brissot and his takeover at the, the Jacobin Club. He uses it as a soapbox, as a, as a tribune. Um, and so Brissot, Vernier, and the, the Girondists are now in con control of the, the, the Jacobins, and they want to use war to force the king to show his hand. Right? We all know that the Austrians are coming. It would be best to strike first. Right? They argue that war will unify the country. Uh, you know, the king and queen, they want uh, the revolution to destroy itself. 
right? The queen has been asking her brother for years to send an, an army to protect her uh, in Paris. Um, you know, and I should point out that both the Austrians uh, and the Prussians right, had really no interest in invading France at this point. They were busy in Eastern Europe carving up, carving up Poland. They were happy to see the, the French weaken themselves. Um, okay, which would certainly you know, changes after the French invade them, but there was no talk you know, in Vienna uh, you know, or in Berlin of coming in to, to rescue Louis the Sixteenth at this point. Um, you know, the, the Marquis de Lafayette was a foyant, but he was hoping for war to strengthen his own hand. Right? So, in personal terms, you know, he was looking forward to war. Right? The, the popular movement was divided. Right. Danton and the sections, they want war um, because they think that it will um, force the king to show its hand, because they think that it will lead to an upsurge of popular patriotism. Um, but the key I, I want to emphasize here is that Maximilien Robespierre famously opposes the push for war. Uh, and, and he says in January of 1792, I mean, it's a, a really memorable speech that he gives in the Jacobin Club, pushing back against Brissot and the Girondists, Robespierre says the most ridiculous idea that can arise in the head of a politician is to believe that it's enough to invade a country to make it adopt your laws and your constitution. No one likes armed missionaries. Okay, so for all that a fear of plots and intrigue drove the French Revolution, the most paranoid of all politicians, Robespierre, actually opposed the war, right? And it's the war, ultimately, that radicalized the revolution. Okay, so, so where does that leave us? Right, the consensus of the early years of the revolution remained strong in the fall of 1791, right? The assembly had finished its work, it had passed the constitution known as the constitution of 1791, right? So the society of orders, first, second, third estate has been abolished. Everyone is equal before the law. Uh, you know, the, the new constitution distinguishes between active and passive citizens. Active citizens are wealthy property owners who enjoy full political rights, where passive citizens, the majority, were still excluded from politics. Right? This new uh, constitution has a single chamber and has a relatively weak king. Right? I, uh, I mentioned that the elections of 1791 return a two to one Fouillon majority. So there's a strong majority within the assembly who want to bring the revolution to a, to a close, but who support the principles of 1789. Okay, but for all that the, the consensus remains, there are now major divisions within the revolution, right? And the first, right, the main issue on the agenda at that point was the drive to war, right? Robespierre opposed, but most of the, the, you know, the working classes support it, the king and queen support it, um, and, um, you know, Brissot and the Jacobins support it. Um, you know, the, the Paris sectional movement has begun to assert itself, right? You know, they think middle-class politicians are too weak, too timid. There's a new populist press inflaming these divisions. After the flight to Varennes and the Champ de Mars massacre, the Jacobin club itself moves decisively to the political left, 
right? So this is where you know, Brissot and the, the Girondists take over, uh, you know, attacking the Foyant as corrupt, as too indulgent to the king. Um, now, Robespierre was a relatively minor figure in the Jacobins at this point, but his own self-denying ordinance prevented him from serving in the new legislative assembly. Right? And so even more than the Girondists, Robespierre, like Danton, began to cultivate the support of the Sans-Culotte and the sectional movement in Paris. So for the time being, uh, you know, he resisted their demands to remove the king. He resisted their demands at this point uh, for price controls. But increasingly, he linked his political fate to theirs. 